huge privilege to come to a place where uh, he gets to lead this great uh, community of faith. And uh, my, my wife and daughter and son are back there, and my sister and brother-in-law, and my mom and dad, and my grandfather. And, uh, yeah, um, it's like the Hatfields or McCoys or... It's, uh, this is going to be fun. Um, I'm, I'm, this is really interesting. It's kind of like a, I don't know if it's deja vu. I don't, I don't know what the feeling is. But when I was a little kid growing up on George Anderson Drive in Pine Valley, like right down the road, all this was woods. And um, I'm just curious. Anybody else grew up around here when all this was woods? You remember? You know, it, it was... And so when I was like my daughter and my son's age, we would, uh, my friends and I would go and we would play back here for hours and hours and hours. Um, my mom must have been very trusting of us to just let us go back in the woods because now I go, would I do that with my own kids? Uh, maybe the answer is no. But back then it was like, that's what you did. You just went and played in the woods until it was time for dinner. And we would come back here. It was just, it was like a jungle to us. You know, we might as well have been in. In Brazil, a Brazilian rainforest or, or an African Sahara, uh, uh, you know, with rivers and monkeys and tigers and stuff. I mean, it was just a, we used our imagination and the pretty much like the, the genesis for for all of our playback here had to do with the theme of rescue. And that's true for your life, too, when you grew up and played and for your kids as they grew up and play. Everything they do do has to do with rescue. At, at one level, you know, think about if you're pretending to be a fireman, you're, you're not just driving the truck, are you? No, you're pretending to be, you know, running into the burning building and to rescue somebody, right? Or if you're a police officer or for us, we, we always played army back here. And there was always some horrible enemy, you know, that we were going to rescue um, our folks from, from their, um, you know, possession or whatever. And so that all happened here. Uh, about 35 years ago, and now there's a church here. And I used to shoot cans off of a limb of a tree over there with my BB gun. <laughs> and now there's pavement and, uh, and a church office and all that kind of good stuff. So this is kind of neat. Hey, my, um, my goal for today is to try to articulate um, how God rescues us. And I know that seems like really simple at first, but I think we live in a world where um, we're reminded daily with whether we watch the news, you know, Internet, listen to the radio, read the paper. We're reminded daily that the world is evil and is coming at us. (laughs) You know, we're collapsing around this thought of the days are getting darker. And uh, that's not necessarily true. There's always been evil. There's always been sin. And God has always provided rescue. Paul says it this way. He says it's kind of like the already but not yet. You know, we've been rescued um, by Jesus' work on the cross. But but we don't yet really fully realize what that means. And we haven't come into a full appreciation of that rescue. And so we're going to look at the uh, Old Testament reading from Numbers, a New Testament reading from the Gospel of John. And then a, a New Testament letter from um, from Ephesians. Uh, I am not going to sing a song for you right now, but I want to um, recite uh, a song. I'm just going to read it. 
and see if you can see yourself in this. This is one of my favorite singer-songwriters, a guy, uh, a guy named David Wilcox. The song's called Show the Way. You say you see no hope. You say you see no reason we should dream that the world would ever change. You say love is foolish to believe. Because there will always be some crazy when, with an army or a knife to wake us from our daydream and put fear back in our life. Look, if someone wrote a play just to glorify what's stronger than hate, would they not arrange the stage to look as if the hero came too late? We're almost in defeat. It's looking like the evil side would win. So on the edge of every seat from the moment the whole thing begins. You see, it's love who makes the mortar. It's love who stacks the stones. It's love who set the stage here, though it looks like we're alone. In the scene set in shadows, like the night is here to stay. There is evil all around us. But it's love that wrote the play. For in this darkness, love can show the way. Sometimes it looks really desperate on the big picture. We see what's happening in the Middle East. We see what's happening with the wars. We see what's happening in our government. We see what's happening in commerce. We see what's happening in our families. We see what's happening with our friends. We see what's happening in our heart. And it seems like there's, there's no hope. But there's, there's been hope. There's been hope from the beginning of time. God is constantly in the process of rescue. I, I grew up here in the South. And in the South, uh, there's those, our brothers and sisters in Christ who use some different rhetoric to describe this. I remember um, being a little kid and going to a vacation Bible school at a church in my neighborhood. And I remember this guy came up to me and he said... He kind of got down on my level and he says, have you been saved? You know, and I was like, from what? (laughs) You know, I'm looking around like, is there a dragon nearby? (laughs) What's going to happen to me? Brothers, sisters, have you been saved? Well, I love that heart, even though sometimes that makes me cringe a little bit. But it's, you know, he was asking, do you understand this rescue? Again, I remind you of Paul, you know, it's an already but not yet. It's already happened, but we don't quite yet understand how this works out in our life on a day-to-day basis because it's an ongoing thing. It's a process. Let's uh, look at Numbers, that scripture from Numbers. We're going to look at uh, chapter 21, and we're going to look at verse 4 through 9 of that. The rescue is happening The people of God, the Israelites, are in desperate need. They were in bondage. They've been set free, but yet they're not all the way there yet, you know. And they're wandering. They're wandering and they're in trouble. And then they do what I do every day. They start complaining and they get impatient. So let's pick it up from verse 4. They traveled from the Mount of War along the route to the Red Sea to go to Edom. But the people grew impatient on the way. Impatience. Impatience will stop you in your tracks from experiencing the rescue of God on a daily basis. I am the most impatient person on planet Earth. I thought my wife was going to say amen when I said that. 
I am very, very impatient. I have always been impatient. I am impatient with my relationships. I'm impatient um, when it comes to my profession. And I'm, most importantly, I'm impatient when it comes to God. You see, that shows distrust. That is sin present in my heart because I, I know God is good. I know that there is a creative process that began when he thought me up and knit me together in my mother's womb. And, and, but, but now I'm, I'm impatient because, God, I'm not seeing the grand plan today. Does that strike a chord with anybody? Do you, do you sit there today and go, wow, yeah, I'm impatient too with my relationship with Christ. You know, it, it's, it's not like he's taking us through an assembly line. Like you get this part and then that part there and then you get this part here and then you're going to get to the end of the assembly line and someone's going to put you in a nice little plastic container and sit you on a shelf and there's the end product. Ta-da! That's not the way God does it. He's constantly at work in our lives and he's living and active and it doesn't, it doesn't resolve in some pretty little package. He that began a good work in you will carry it through to completion to the day of Christ Jesus. That's what the scripture says. So we're in this process and we grow impatient. And that is sin. And God is not happy with that sin. You think like, well, I'm not a murderer. That's like the big sin. You know, I haven't stolen anything lately. You know, that's the big sin. But look at God's reaction to these people's impatience. Verse 5. By the way, I'm reading out of the NIV. I think you guys are the ESV in your pews. It's pretty similar. They spoke against God and against Moses. So when you grow impatient, you start saying things about God and about those around you who are caring for your faith. And they're not necessarily true because of this impatience, this lack of trust. And they said, why have you brought us out of Egypt to die in this wilderness? There is no bread, there is no water, and we detest this miserable food. God is taking them from bondage, from this really bad place, and he's rescuing them, and they're whining and complaining. That is, uh, there's a, a verse that in my family we use all the time with our kids. We try to like get, the, you know, do everything without complaining or arguing that you may become blameless and pure children of God. But we've changed it. In our house, it's do everything without arguing or whining. Gosh. The whining has to end. You know? And they're whining. If we really want to read it how they were saying, it was... Uh, why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in this wilderness? We detest this miserable for their whining. They're impatient. They show no trust. Are we any different from our children? Are we any different from these people? We start complaining. Recently, I had this, this transition happening in my life professionally. And you can ask my wife about this. I have been a nonstop wine factory. I whine constantly about this opportunity. And it is God's provision in my life. And I'm whining about it. Because I'm impatient. Because I'm sinful. Because I don't trust God's rescue. His ongoing rescue in my life. Then the Lord, verse 6, then the Lord sent venomous snakes among them, and they bit the people, and many Israelites died. Did, did Jimmy just say, does the scripture say that they were whining and complaining, and God sent snakes to bite them, and they died? Yes. 
You know, as we we read that and we can kind of go, there were snakes and they were getting bit and they were dying. That's a crazy story. This is the God. This is God, the father that we just worshiped in song. This is how he treats his people. He detests our unfaithfulness. He does not take sin lightly at all. He detests our impatience because God on his throne sees all. And we can we can't even see this far and we whine and we complain and we do not appreciate the rescue. And God sends snakes to bite us. And they die. That's the God of Christianity. But we don't read that in some of our Christian books and we don't see that in some of our Christian teachings because it's, it's dirty and it's messy and it's confusing. Why would God do that? They're 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 getting bitten on their ankles. And what happens to their posture? Their posture looks down. They're not looking out to where they're going anymore. They're not looking out for each other and caring for each other. They become self-absorbed in this biting of these snakes. And they look down and they're probably stomping and dancing and trying to kick the snakes off. And they're getting bitten. And they're now they're completely obsessed with this process selfishly. See, that's what the long arm of sin does is it makes us uh, draw in on ourselves. We forget about those around us. We forget about where we're going. We forget about God's faithfulness. We forget about the rescue. And now all we can do is think of ourselves and what's going on around us in our lives. And make no mistakes. We are victims of sin. You have been a victim of sin. There are things in your life that you're dealing with that you did not want. But we're also villains in our sin. We're the victim and we're the villain. And those two things get completely entwined. And that's what's happening here. They have been the villain in their unfaithfulness. And now they are victims as these snakes are biting them and they are dying. And God's grand rescue plan marches on. The people came to Moses and said, we've sinned against, uh, we, we, we sinned when we spoke against the Lord and against you. Pray that the Lord would take the snakes away from us. I'm sure they, they said it much more desperately than I just read it. So Moses prayed for the people. The Lord said to Moses, uh, you read that in the scriptures, the Lord said to some, the God spoke with words audible to this man, Moses. And he said, make a bronze snake and put it on a pole and lift it up. And then when anybody is bitten, they'll look up and they'll see this bronze snake and that'll save them. They'll live. That sounds like something out of like an Indiana Jones movie. But this is what really happened. This is not fictional. Moses made this staff and he would hold it up high and it drew everyone's posture away from the snakes, away from themselves and up to something higher, more exalted in their presence And they were saved. God's rescue plan is unfolding. God saves us from something. 
He rescues us from something, and that something is he saves us from ourselves. He saves us from sin. He saves us from, the, uh, from having to look down at our circumstances. He says, no, look up. I will save you. Look up. Look up to the hope that I offer. Now let's turn our Bibles to the Gospel of John. Chapter 3. See, God saves us from something, sin and ourselves. He saves us to something. He saves us to himself. Because he's God and we're his. And that's what a loving father does. He saves us from something and then he saves us to himself. And this is how it takes place. Let's pick up. Chapter 3, verse 14. Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so too the Son of Man must be lifted up that everyone who believes may have eternal life in him. Another translation might say, so that the Son of Man must be exalted that everyone who believes may have eternal life in him. When, um, when your posture is drawn down and all you can look at is your own circumstances, you lose hope. You don't pay attention to those around you. Uh, when I was in college, I worked at a Young Life camp and I taught rock climbing and repelling and, and the ropes course and all that kind of stuff. And they taught us this little simple deal. What would happen is, is a kid would get up on the ropes course or on the side of a cliff or whatever. And they're getting ready to repel off of an 80 foot cliff and they get scared and they start losing trust. And then they and what happens in their posture is they, they, they get drawn in, you know, and then they like, get up in a little ball. You know, we saw it the fetal position. And what it is, is the position of no more trust. Look up. That's what we would tell them. No, no, look up. If you just look up from your circumstances, it'll change. Look at me. Make eye contact with me. I know what I'm doing. That's what the writer is saying here. He's going, look up, look up to Jesus. He's been lifted up. He's been exalted. Look up to Jesus because he will rescue you. This, the end of verse 15 is very important. That anyone who believes may have eternal life in him. This rescue operation is all about Jesus. He's not rescuing us because he has this this um, other plan for us that has something to do with this world that he created. He's rescuing us for himself, for himself, because we're his. He rescues us from something ourselves and our sin. He rescues us to something, a relationship with this living God. When I when I was growing up on PBS, there was this great little TV show called Mr. Rogers Neighborhood. And I was obsessed with the little trolley that would go around. You know what I'm talking about? Now, I was scared by some of the little puppets. That wasn't supposed to be funny. It really frightened me. But remember Mr. Rogers, who, by the way, was a Presbyterian pastor. Did you know that? Mr. Rogers, um, he would come and he would sit at the end of the show. And at the beginning of the show, he'd start off with changing his shoes and his cardigan sweater. And then we would put on another cardigan sweater and more comfy shoes. And then he would go to work, you know, in his little factory with trolleys and weird puppets and stuff like that. And I never really quite understood why did that guy wear such uncomfortable shoes all the time? That when he was in his house, he had to change. But Mr. Rogers was the idea and the vision I had of God. 
I know that sounds weird, but I grew up in this church culture that taught truth, but I interpreted that truth that God was very tame and very nice and that he would never send venomous snakes to bite his people and kill them. And that God would never, never do anything to harm somebody he loves. But this is the God, this is God the Father who in his, uh, in his rescue sent his son to die a bloody death on the cross. Not so tidy, not so um, Mr. Rogers like. Now... If you were in trouble and I was going to rescue you, I would, I mean, some of you I don't even know, I'd probably go pretty far in that rescue operation. And for those that I know, I might go all the way. I might be willing to give my own life. That's what Paul says. For, for a good man, someone might dare to die. But God demonstrates his love in, for us in this. While we're still sinners, while we are completely obsessed with our own sin and our own life, God demonstrates his love by giving his own son for us. That is a dangerous God. That is not the God that I'm uh, keenly aware of every day of my life. That is a God that I don't like to think about sometimes because it's messy and it's dangerous. And it's scary to think that that's the God we serve. Now, recently, I experienced something like these snake bites. Okay. I was mowing the grass of a friend of mine. She was out of town and she called me and said, hey, I got to move out of my apartment or my house that I'm staying in. Can you can you go by and mow the grass? I promised my landlord, Lord, I'd mow the grass. And all I had in my car were the sandals that I had on, the little Chaco sandals. So I didn't have like the steel toe boots you're supposed to wear and the safety goggles and all that. But I'll go by and mow your grass. Well, I got there. The grass was like this high. You know, I'm like, great. And it was just this little tiny, you know, push mower, no like power wheels or anything like that. The blade was about this big. But I did my best. So I'm mowing the grass and when it come up to the big tall weeds, I'd lift the back of the mower up, you know, and you kind of like try to chomp down on the grass, you know. And so I'm doing this and then all of a sudden I felt this bam right on my little ankle, you know. And I looked down and that snake was about 10 foot long. Big pit viper fangs. No, it was about this big. And, uh, and it wasn't poisonous, but it startled me. <laughs> and, uh, and, you know, as I tell that story sometimes, people are like, you know, didn't you, like, chop it up with the lawnmower? I would have chopped it up with a lawnmower. And I go, no, I would not harm one of God's creatures like that, Sam. <laughs> Plus, he got away. He slithered underneath the porch, and I couldn't get him. So I did not have a, like this dramatic experience with my snake bite. But they say when you are a snake bitten by a poisonous snake, the venom goes, venom goes into your uh, bloodstream and it makes you feel like you're dying of thirst. They say snake bite victims always complain almost instantly of being very, very thirsty. Which is amazing, like the imagery in the scriptures where you know, I'm the living water, you know, and there's these snake bites happening and stuff like that. Here's how C.S. Lewis does it. I love this. In, in his uh, book, The Silver Chair, written in 1953, it's part of the Chronicles of Narnia series. Um, Jill, I couldn't remember her name. Jill is this, this little girl. She's having a conversation with Aslan, the lion, who represents Christ, not Mr. Rogers. A lion. 
Have you ever seen a lion roar? Have you ever seen a lion like devour its prey? A lion is the, is the image that C.S. Lewis uses here. The lion asked Jill, are you thirsty? Jill says, I'm dying of thirst. Then drink, says the lion. May I? Could I? Would you, would you mind going away for a while while I do, said Jill. The lion answered this by only a look and a very low growl. And as Jesus gazed at its motionless bulk, she realizes she might as well have asked the entire mountain to move aside for her convenience. The delicious rippling noise of the stream was driving her nearly frantic. Will you promise not to? Will you promise not to do anything to me if I come to you? I make no promise, said the lion. Jill was so thirsty now that without noticing it, she had come a step closer to the lion. Do you eat up little girls? Said Jill. I have swallowed up girls and boys, women and men, kings and emperors, cities and realms, said the lion. And didn't say it as if it were boasting, nor if it was sorry, nor if it was angry. It just said it. I dare not come drink, said Jill. And you will die of thirst, said the lion. Oh, dear, said Jill, coming another step closer. I suppose I must go look for another stream then. Then the lion said, there is no other stream. God rescues us from something, our sin and ourselves. He rescues us to something himself. We can draw our attention up from our lives and up from the sin where we are both victims and villains and look at the exalted Christ. And he says, you are saved to me. You are for me. But there is no other way. You must come to me or you will die of thirst. There is a, uh, I wish I could blow this up and let you see this cartoon I saw recently. It, it, this this is me, okay? And this is probably you. Don't be offended by this, but I'm telling you from the pulpit, this is probably all of, our, all of us. There's this cartoon where, I'm going to kind of draw it up here, okay? So here, here it is, and there's, it's a desert, so let's draw a little cactus here, and there is the desert, so there's a big sun, and there's these two people. There's a, there's a husband and a wife, I guess, a man and a woman there, and they are very, Hot and very thirsty. They're dying of thirst in this desert. They're they're crawling and they're trying to get through the sand. They're trying to find some water. And you can imagine that they're having this conversation. And then the the woman says, and I'm not picking a woman here. It's just the funny part of the story. The woman says, of course, if it does rain, my hair will get frizzy. (laughs) And I love that because that's how I come to God. God says, come, Jimmy, you're mine. And I go, uh, but of course, if I do come to you, that'll change my life. And I don't like that. Of course, if I do come to you, I'm going to have to give up doing this. Or I'm going to have to change that. I'm going to, my lifestyle is going to have to change, God. If I do come to you and you transform my life and you make me more like you, I'm going to have to spend my money differently. I'm going to have to speak differently. I'm going to have to hang out with different people. It's going to get messy. Of course, my 
hair will get frizzy. But I'd rather just die of thirst. And that's the culture we live in. And I'm not talking about the non-Christian culture. I'm talking about the followers of Christ. We say, oh, but then this will happen. It won't be very tidy. God saves us from something. God saves us to something. And God saves us for something. We're closing with this. If you look in Ephesians chapter 2. My mother-in-law's name is Mabel. Mabel Muscat. I love my mother-in-law, and I'm going to describe her in such a way that my wife might get frustrated with me. But she she wears overalls. Her name is Mabel, and she wears overalls. That's a perfect picture right there, right? And she loves going to flea markets. So Mabel Muscat with overalls going to the flea market. You got that picture? She is this sweet, sweet lady. And one of the things I love most about her is she finds value in things that other people would overlook. She goes to these flea markets, and she finds this thing... And she buys it for like 20 cents. And then she goes back and she makes these arts and crafts and things with this thing. And, and then she doesn't really even sell it sometimes. But it's like amazing what she does. Some of you might have that ability. You know, you take something that, you know, you go, I have a purpose for this. And you redo it. And then you go, oh, look how great that turned out. Like an old car or an old house or whatever. So Mabel... With her overalls and she runs around in these flea markets or whatever. She loves it and she puts together all this little stuff. And, you know, here's the thing. When you do that, when Mabel does that, she's not saving it to, like, put it on a shelf or saving it to throw it away. She's saving it for a reason. God saves us from something to something and for something God did not send his son to die so we can sit in comfortable chairs in a comfortable building in a comfortable community. God has great plans for you. Let's look here in Ephesians. We're going to look here at uh, verse 8. For it is grace, for it is by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not from yourselves. It is the free gift of God, not by works so that no one can boast. For we are God's my version says handiwork. Another version says workmanship. And my favorite is from the, the living, the new living version of the Bible translation. For we are God's masterpiece created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared for us in advance to do. God prepared in advance for us to do something. Are we living into that? Now, no, make no mistake. It's not uh, these works don't. Find us favor with God. God already loves us. He already sent his son to die for us. He's already proven his love. But he says, please don't just sit there now. I have a great plan for you. And I need you. I need you because I am in you. And I can't be me unless you are you in me now. Does that make sense? I need you to be who I am making you to be. Don't just sit there. I have something planned for you. And it is good. It is very good. Saves us from something, to something, for something. I saved you for a reason. The title of this sermon was Snakes, a Lion, and Ducks. So if you look in your scripture there about the story about duck. Oh, that's right. That's not it. So there's this... uh, there's this story I heard of these ducks. 
It's a church of ducks in Duckville. Now, the church, on a Sunday morning, about 1030, and the church bell rings, and all the ducks come waddling out of their little duck houses. And they waddle down the road, and they waddle into church. Do you like that? So they waddle into church, and they're greeting everybody in their duck language. And they're shaking each other's wings. And they have a seat, and they sing a couple of songs. You know. And the pastor gets up in the pulpit. He waddles up there. And he gets up there, and he waxes eloquent. I mean, it's beautiful. And he starts talking about, we are ducks. And God gave us wings. And we can soar like eagles. And look at our webbed feet. We can go into the ocean. We can go into the lakes. We can go into the rivers. Look what we can do. We're ducks. And they're just whipped into a frenzy now. Wah, 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 wah. There's feathers flying everywhere. Well, he gets to the end of his sermon and he's laying it down. I mean, he's pounding the pulpit with his wing. We are ducks. We can fly. We can soar to the heavens. We're ducks. We can engage the whole world however we want to because we're ducks. And everybody's giving their best duck amens. And then he's done and he goes back and sits back down. They do the closing hymn and they all get up and they waddle home. That's what the church is doing right now. We are saved for something, but yet we're content with just sitting and being saved and being rescued. And we forget that this rescue process is ongoing. It's like we've stopped it prematurely because it might get messy. As we come this morning to take communion, I don't want to remind you that God is mysteriously present. He's present in our worship. He's present in the teaching of the word. And he's present here in these elements, the body and the blood of Christ. As you come today, as you walk down this aisle, I want you to consider, are you waddling down the aisle like a duck? And the answer is yes. And as you take communion, I want you to pray, God, God in me, the hope. God in me, your glory. Save, you saved me for something. What is it you want me to do? How can I transform culture? How can I transform lives? I heard a great, great quote the other day. It said, uh, uh, do not just ask what needs to be done. Ask what makes you come alive. Because what the world needs is people that are alive. Let's pray.